Amen. So true. Far beyond seasonal truths, those hymns are simply triumphant, glorious. And, uh, well, we are back in Ephesians, and uh, we are going to be looking today at verse 4 of this text. And uh, therefore, you can see the focus there in verse 4 is addressed to fathers. And so, particularly today, we're going to be looking at uh, an appeal to the fathers uh, in the church. But, uh, of course, this is extended to every parent, uh, to everyone uh, who has children. And so, it's not just limited to the fathers, although this is what Paul is addressing Uh, Why don't you pray with me one more time, and we will begin our study, okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the true Father. You are the Father of all fathers. You are the righteous Father. You are the loving Father. You are the Father of all. You are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the greatest example of what a father should and ought to be. You are the perfect Father, and therefore... Help us to understand that our role as a father is to imitate you above all. To imitate you in your righteousness and your holiness and your kindness, your mercy, your truth. I pray, Lord, today a special blessing over our church as I understand how significant it is to be a father and the weight and the gravity that is involved, the responsibility, the gravity and the weight of of that responsibility, that calling, that role. I pray that today you would use this as a means of grace, Lord, to elevate our view of fatherhood. Give us a high view today, Lord. Give us dignity. Lord, give us passion for fatherhood. Give us vision where our eyes have fallen, where our vision has been cast down, We pray that you would give us encouragement and strength. And Lord, we pray this for the the ultimate goal of seeing our children saved. That they would come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and that they would be spared from your wrath. And so Lord, we know that as we looked at last week, that fatherhood is a gospel issue. And so would you give us the strength now to go through this study together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, obviously, we're continuing this, uh, this message on a really practical message that we've been doing, God and you, and different subjects we've been talking about today, uh, part two of God parenting and you, and specifically in verse four. Let's read that verse because That's going to be our focus today. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this, he says, and more importantly, God's Word. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a really short uh, verse, uh, but it is not short in content. And certainly, it cannot be underestimated in in terms of its importance and its gravity Uh, for our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this uh, verse in three headings, because I think the Apostle Paul gives us three particular uh, headings that are talking points here that we want to focus on, all having to do with fatherhood and what I want to call the priority of fatherhood, the propensity of fathers, and the place 
of fathers. And so the priority, the propensity, and the place. A simple outline, I think, is what the text is giving us here. And so I think we should follow the outline that uh, Paul gives us directly here in the text. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. If you think about the context in which the Apostle Paul writes, when he writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to a a group of people that live in a Roman province. They're in a Greco-Roman culture, and they're surrounded by Greco-Roman life. And in that life, the father played a critical role. Matter of fact, to be a father in the Greco-Roman world meant that you had absolute unmitigated authority and responsibility over your family. As a matter of fact, that, that authority, that, that, uh, that role that the father had was in one sense good because it, it illustrated the necessity for fatherhood in a culture. Matter of fact, the Romans had the, 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 the mindset that without the father, the whole society would break down. And certainly we could agree to that. We could say that's great, that's good. Uh, that's something that every culture needs. I mean, just take a look at our culture and the systemic issues that persist in our culture because fathers are not, A, doing what they're supposed to be doing, or B, sometimes they're not in the picture at all. And so fatherhood is critical to the survival of any people. However, also in Greco-Roman life, the father, they didn't, they didn't just have the responsibility of fatherhood in the family, but they had such power that they actually decided whether their family, their children, their wives, and people of their household like slaves, whether they would live or die. A father had the authority in his hand, the power to put his own children to death if he didn't approve of them. And sometimes, uh, as many commentators have pointed out, John MacArthur, Peter O'Brien, and others have pointed out that um, there's a lot of literature that speaks to the fact that fathers sometimes, even at birth, they would decide whether they would keep their offspring. And so a father would look at a baby that was freshly born and say, determine whether or not he was worth keeping. And that quickly a father would discard of, a, of an infant. I mean, it was a truly barbaric world, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And so you can see the, the, the gravity of Paul's words here and the, the, what, what a splash that would have made on a society where when Paul addresses fatherhood, he doesn't need to say a whole lot. When he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord, that was a radical departure from the Greco-Roman worldview. Um, And that's right. Even the Jewish uh, mindset was altered here because, as you see, the Apostle Paul says, in the Lord. That's where the proper sphere of parenting exists. And when he says, in the Lord He's referencing Christ. In Christ is the only way to have true biblical fatherhood now. That's just remarkable. So for Paul, the biblical worldview, fathers had a great responsibility to train and love and disciple their children. And that's, you know, that, those are the things that we're going to look at. And so the priority of the father is seen in the fact that Paul addresses the fathers directly. Um, notice that. He uses the word here for fathers. Look at verse 1, which differs from verse 1, where he says, children obey your parents. Now, parents is a different word than the word fathers. And there, when it's in the, uh, in the plural, he's meaning to distinguish fathers 
as the head of the home. So there's a male headship issue that the Apostle Paul here intentionally wants to illustrate. This is so good for us. This is so good that the Apostle Paul took the time to, 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 to put a spotlight on the role of the father in particular. I would say that when a father is doing what a father is supposed to be doing biblically, that will trickle down to the family just like it affects a society. It affects the entire house when a father is either doing what he's supposed to be doing or not doing what he's supposed to be doing. When he's abdicating his responsibilities to do what he's supposed to do, what results is dysfunction, abuse, delinquency in children, a total destruction of the family, a complete deterioration of the family unit. And so you can see why Paul is so wise to focus on the fathers here. And um, I think the whole proper function of the whole marriage, of the whole family, is rooted in what does the husband do? What What does the father do in that home? You will really dictate the pace of your home. I mean, there's so much that can be talked about here. There's so many different ways we can go, but so many mothers are forced to face life without a father. I mean, just ask any mom who has had to face life with a child without a father in the picture how hard that really is. I mean, you think of a single mom raising a, a teenage son. I mean, you want to talk about a thorny situation, multiple children. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's terrible, and that's not what God ordained. That's not what God designed, and therefore... Fathers need to be put back into their proper place and given their significance. Paul cannot even endure the idea of a deadbeat dad. Uh, that's just not even in Paul's solar system that a father would be allowed to abdicate his responsibilities, so much so that, in a sense, he's not even really present in the home. So many homes operate like that, don't they? I mean, maybe you grew up in a house like that where dad was there, but he wasn't really there. Uh, He's present, but he's not involved. He has no interest in the family. He has no interest in the development of his children. He has no interest to disciple his wife, to disciple his children, nothing. And it's a sad commentary on the state of our of our times, of our culture, and sadly, even the church. How many times, you know, as a pastor, have I been in a situation where I'm counseling a family, a marriage, a father, and the issue is that he just simply doesn't want to do what God calls him to do. He doesn't take it serious. He doesn't see the value of it. He doesn't fear God enough to do what God tells him to do. It's really sad. Some fathers, even though they're physically present, we know they can be emotionally, psychologically and spiritually absent from the home. Um, This is what we need to really understand. And this is why I think it's important to focus on the priority of fathers. Fathers set the pace in their home. Uh, What the children see their fathers doing, that's what fathers need to be concerned about. Instead of abdicating and neglecting their children, they need to be setting the pace for the children. They need to be setting the example for their children. And fathers and husbands have to see their importance. Now, he, he references here fathers, but it doesn't take him long to actually point out the propensity of a father. And that is the next phrase where he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Isn't that remarkable that that's what he decides to focus on? Fathers, don't provoke your children. And so what that tells us, and I think the thing we need to begin with is understand that our nature and by nature 
as fathers, we are wired to do things the wrong way. And so we need to really be humble and receive instruction. As a new father, I look at this and I go, I'm so glad the Apostle Paul put this in here so that I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know not only what to do, but how to do it. In other words, he picks up on the manner in which you are to do this as well. It's not just follow a list. It's you need to adopt a a certain disposition. You need to adopt a certain attitude as a father. You have to have a certain manner uh, with your kids as well. But he knows that we don't do this perfectly. He knows that our propensity as fathers is to provoke our children to anger if we are not careful. How does that happen? Well, of course, that happens because fathers sort of lord their authority over their children. And and notice what he says here. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Now, that word there of provocation, it just means that you're you're stirring them up. Uh, You're agitating them. You're irritating your children. How? Well, probably because the father is being either too controlling, he's being too overbearing, too demanding, His expectations are too high. Maybe he's legalistic with his children. Maybe he's making his children bear a burden that he cannot bear. Uh, These are things that we need to be careful about as parents, I mean, mother or father. Because if you think about it, much of what you do as a parent is you dish out commands. You're constantly telling your children, no, don't do this or do this. Go here. Don't go there. Don't do that. Put that down. Pick this up. You know, get ready. Don't throw a fit. I mean, it's constant commands. And so it's very easy for us to go overboard in that authority figure position that we have and become overwhelming for our children. And I think you're going to see that uh, even here. But I think talking about being humble and receiving, I think when it comes to this, husbands need to learn from their wife, right? I mean, that's, that's the first line of accountability, as it were. I think wives should be able to speak into our lives and tell us what they think about our attitude with our children. Uh, we need to be ready to receive from them. And when they're giving us godly advice, we need to listen. We need to listen to them because no one, you know, no one knows you better than your spouse. And so your wife is able to look into your demeanor and your attitude and your temperature with your children, and she's able to tell you, hey, you need to tone it down a little bit, or you need to step it up, one or the other. And I think we need to be humble enough to receive from our wives and all of that. And at this point, if we're not willing to receive as fathers from our wives as mothers, then at this point, it's just selfishness and pride, and that will get in the way in the development of our children. And that's why the Apostle Paul instructs us to do this. Together, I think godly parents should work as a team. I think we should be working together for everything regarding our children. Matter of fact, that's crucial for any house, is that father and mother are on the same page, that they have the same standards, the same game plan. It's not that mom wants to, uh, uh, you know, really enforce you know, these rules in the home, but dad just comes home and just wants to be laxed about everything. No, no, no. You have to agree what you're going to do, and then you need to stick to it. I mean, many of you parents in here could probably come up here and finish the sermon about how children are very skilled at pitting one parent against the other, right? Well, dad said, right? And they'll remember, you know, last month dad said, right? 
They'll cling to anything they can to divide the home. And so in one sense, this is a calling for parents to be circumspect, to be aware uh, that what's needed is their unity on everything when it comes to parenting. Um, If we don't do this as a team, it will be really hard for us to encourage our children. It's going to be really hard for us to discipline our children. It's going to be hard for us to disciple our children. It's It's going to break everything down. And talk about provoking our children. Far from provoking our children, instead we should encourage them. We should inspire them. We should, we should want our children to, you know, to, to want to do things and not just avoid things. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But you can see this uh, dynamic here. If you turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. There's actually a really close parallel The Apostle Paul says, look, don't discourage children. So immediately he focuses on the fact that we can do this wrong if we're not intentional. But the second thing is that we need to acknowledge that through our failure, we can also, if we don't have the right balance, we can also bear the blame for what goes wrong with our children. You see that there? He says, you know, don't provoke them to what? Anger, wrath. Right? And look at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. He says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. That's something that we need to teach our kids, right? Why do you do this? Why do you obey mom? Why do you obey dad? Why do you have to do this? It's not just for me. It's because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So you're constantly pointing your children to Christ. Fathers, he says, do not exasperate your children so that they will lose heart. You see how we can be responsible for the negative or even sinful response of our children. Uh, We don't want to do that. We want to inspire them, enable them. We want to encourage them. And that really takes for us to be very, very intentional about what we're doing. Uh, If you look at this Greek word here, exasperate, it's similar to the Ephesians word. There the Ephesians word provoke mainly referring to agitating your children, irritating your children. But here he uses the word exasperate, which the root of this word just literally means to arouse, to arouse. It actually speaks about challenging your child. It means that there was relative peace, but you came in for no good reason, and you aroused them and challenged them in a way that was not Good. It didn't produce good behavior. It was just to overwhelm the child. And that's not good either. Parents need to be very careful here because we need to have the proper balance of discipline and discipleship, which is where this is all going. Uh, John MacArthur um, uh, ha- you know, reminds us that there's a really fine line here between what we intend as parents and what we actually do. Listen to what he says. He says, such treatment, when we challenge our children this way, he says, is usually not intended to provoke anger. Often it is thought to be for the, for the child's good. A well-meaning overprotection is a common cause of resentment in children. That's why, you know, the apostle says, you know, that they will be, they'll lose heart. And he says, parents who smother their children overly restrict where they can go, what they can do, Never trust them to do anything on their own. Continually question their judgment. Build a barrier between themselves and their children. 
usually under the delusion that they are building a closer relationship. Children need careful guidance and certain restrictions, but they are individual human beings in their own right and must learn to make decisions on their own commensurate with their age and their maturity. Their wills can be guided, but they cannot be controlled. Oh, that's a that's definitely a balance. Because what he's saying there is that, you know, children are not our robots. You know, they're not just for us to program them. You know, we have to, as much as we give them lists of do's and don'ts, we also have to allow them to be their own individual people. Uh, I got news for you guys. These beautiful little babies that are coming into our church, these young people, these cute little kids that are in here, in a very short while they're going to grow up and they're not going to need you anymore. They're not going to need you. They're going to have their own car. They're going to have their own job. They're going to have their own money. They're going to go where they want to go and do their own thing. In other words, the time is coming where you sink or swim. And if you think that the key is to be overly protective of them, to smother their every move, you're going to get hurt when it comes time for them to live on their own two feet. And I think there's a, like MacArthur says here, there's got to be a fine balance and I can see in every, in the heart of every parent in here, just kind of going, because it's hard to trust your children to do the right things. But if we don't exercise that right of the child, then what are we doing but setting them up to fail? Uh, I think MacArthur's right. Any attempt to control a child, again, bearing in mind their age, their maturity level, their aptitude, But if we find that all we do is control and confine and never permit, never allow, I think that we're going to find that we're putting a burden on them that we can't bear. Like I said, I remember being, uh, I remember when we're working on uh, Unpopular, the film, I went out to see Paul Washer. We went out to lunch and one of the things he told me was uh, when I started talking about family life and his children and what was going on and stuff, he said the Lord taught him a hard lesson He said that he realized everything he was doing with his sons was no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. And he sat back and he said he had to reevaluate and say, but what am I telling them they can do? Where am I guiding them? What can they do that's good? Am I inspiring them to do anything, right? You've got to be in this little Christian bubble at all times or you're never going to be allowed to do anything, well, Paul Washer's remedy was to enroll his son in martial arts. I don't know. And now he's like a super martial art master or something, somebody you want to mess with. But, but hey, at least he inspired his son to go after something with passion instead of telling him, no, 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 no. And so that's, you know, we have to get really, really creative and we, have, we better learn the skill of being able to do this for our children, Right? Um, I had a friend who had a list of reasons why he would not enroll his child in any sports whatsoever. Because it's prideful, because it's self-glorifying, because it's, you know, it's competitive and people get in the flesh and all this stuff. And all these reasons, and I'm sitting there going, man, I would hate to have you as my dad. Because all you're saying, again, is that the whole world represents don't do something. Instead of guiding me down the path of life and showing me how to do something right. See, this is where this is all going. 
This is all going not to a list of do's and don'ts. We have plenty of those, and we should. But more than that, it, it comes to the issue of the place of the Father. Notice, the priority of the Father is that He is addressed directly. He takes the responsibility. Every, you know, he has a, a burden to shoulder. The, the, uh, the propensity of the Father is to produce negative behavior in His children by provocation. And as Paul says in Colossians, also, uh, not just provocation, but also uh, exasperation, overwhelming the child, challenging the child in a sinful way. But he also gives us, what is the proper place then? What is the role? What is the function? What do I do? There's two things. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know how many books have been written on that line right there? <laughs> I mean, I stacks of parenting books. that you know, Probably thousands of volumes have been written because of that verse right there. And rightly so. Because that's, you know, that is the crux text right there that deals with the how-to. Uh, you might have missed it. Notice the word that he uses there. Bring them up. You seeing that? Uh, if, you're, if you're following along in Ephesians, this is not the first time that he uses the word. Look back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he uses the same root word in verse 29 when he's talking about the fact that Husbands and wife really are one, and therefore it makes sense that your wife, who is like your own body, that you should, what does he say? Nourish and cherish it, or her, right? There's the word, nourish. So in the same way, the Apostle Paul says when it comes to your children, the first thing that you should think about in terms of what parenting is and how parenting is done is that it needs to be a nurturing. That's the word he uses there for bringing them up. It's in other words, you have to bring them into a loving environment. A loving environment. And two things. How do we do this? How do we, how do we properly nurture? I mean, think about, again, the Greco-Roman culture. So the Greco-Roman culture, as extreme as it might have been, they hear for the first time somebody says, no, cherish your child, nourish your child, lovingly bring them up in these things. He gives us two words, and with these two words, really two principles. Number one, the place of a father is to discipline, and there you see the word discipline, right? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so this word here, to discipline, is a very interesting word, it's a multifaceted word. It means to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits or behavior, to teach, instruct, to train. That's uh, Lao and Nita's uh, Greek lexicon. Look at the BDAG, same kind of meaning. The word is used in connection with Moses in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, when it speaks about his education. It's... Paul is saying, educate your children. What he's saying is, the duty of a father is to oversee the education of his child. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, educate your children. That's what, that's what discipline here can entail. Uh, it says in Acts, Moses was educated in all of the learning. There it is. That's the word. All of the learning of the Egyptians. So in other words, it definitely pertains to what happens to the mind of a child. 
So every father should be invested in the intellectual development of their children. Uh, Didn't I mention this last week? But, you know, a few hundred years ago, the Puritans, they all did this. And and many of these, you know, this education process started in the home. Uh, The father and the mother were teaching their children in their homes Greek and Hebrew from the earliest age. I mean, that's remarkable. Where, where, Where have we gone? Um... I told Trish, I said, I want you to start getting these big um, uh, uh, letters for Eden, and I want her to start deciding between these letters, which is A, B, C, and she's got to pick kind of like multiple choice. All right, Eden is a remarkably, frighteningly brilliant little child. She scares me to death. I'm starting to realize there's another person in the house. I, I talked last week about not underestimating our children. Don't underestimate your child. You don't know what they're capable of learning if you don't push them to learn it. And therefore, this has a lot to do with the faculty of a child, the the, the mental faculty and the education of a child. And so fathers, remember, the imperative is to you. So when you get home from work and you're exhausted, you still have to have a little bit in the reserve tank to ask mom, how's the homework coming? What is he learning? What is she doing? What is she working on now? What is this about? What's next? What, what's, what's, what's coming up for this year? Where are we going from here? Is there, can we do it any better than what we're doing now? Right? So you need to be invested in that. You need to care about homework. Any loving parent should care about the intellectual development of their child. And if a parent is lazy in this area, it will only encourage children to become lazy and careless about their own education, what they're not held accountable to this. But more than that, more than just simply giving information or facts about history or math or science, this Greek word is also used of instructing for right living. Look at Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This is the word that's used in relationship to the grace of God. The grace of God uses this term, in other words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Titus 2.12, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desire, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There's the word again. And then last of all, which you didn't think I was going to forget, right? Discipline, as much as it refers to training your child intellectually, and to impart wisdom to your child so that they know how to live righteously. It also speaks of corrective discipline. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is so important for us to understand the dynamic of properly disciplining our children in the Lord. This is sort of the key passage on discipline for us spiritually as believers. But there's a metaphor here to parenting, right? Hebrews 12.9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And verse 10 uses the Greek word that's used there in Ephesians. For they disciplined us, that's the word, for a short time as seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness 
All discipline for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. See the close association between corporeal, uh, corrective discipline and positive training. That's what the rod is for, is to positively train. It's not, the rod is not an end to itself. The rod is just a means to an end. It's a means to educate and train the child to live right. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Whatever we're doing with our children in terms of discipline, we have to exercise great self-control. Man, I tell you what, this issue of discipline is so important. And once again, fathers, go back to the beginning of the verse. When it comes to corrective discipline, the imperative is leveled at the Father. You notice that? And so even more than the, than the mother having the responsibility of discipline, and don't get me wrong, you know, a lot of times, dad's at work, you're, you're, you're tied up all day, mom's home alone, and so you have to delegate that authority where she has to be the primary disciplinarian all day long sometimes, right? And then you get home from work, and you're exhausted, and the last thing you want to do is to spank your child. But if you are a father, that's your job, right? It's not what feels good. It's not what you think is good. It's not what you think it should be or ought to be. First and foremost is that we have guidelines that are given to us for our good. You say, well, it doesn't work because every time I get home, the child is misbehaved. I have to discipline. And so therefore, you know, I don't want them to think that when dad gets home, the only thing they get from dad is discipline. Well, guess what? That's your wisdom. But God's wisdom is better than your wisdom. And what God is telling you is if you don't go through this small season where you have to be the disciplinarian and you have to persist and, and be consistent in that discipline, well, guess what? Then next year, you're going to be in the same place. And the year after that, it's going to get worse. And if you build this pattern that dad just lets you slide while mom's been struggling with you all day, you will reap what you sow. We will reap what we sow. And God is smarter than we are. Fathers, discipline your children. It doesn't say mothers, though that's something that you need to do. It doesn't say anybody else. You notice that? It doesn't say fathers, tell your other children to discipline your younger children. It doesn't say that either. Uh, you shouldn't do that. No one should. Uh, I want to sort of camp out on this because I was thinking about this and it's like, this is the wisdom of it. Like right now, I would say Trish is doing 99.9% of the discipline with Eden because it's so intimate. It's during feeding time and it's during changing time and it's during, you know, food time and play time, right? And, there's a, and she is hands-on with that kid nonstop. But as Eden gets older, I'm going to have to come more and more into the picture and take up that role and fulfill my duty and discipline my child and it's not going to be easy, but I'm not ever, I'm not ever going to tell anybody else to do it. You, you know, siblings should not be disciplining each other. Never put your, never put the sibling in the place of a parent. Uh, what will happen is that you will embitter your children toward each other, and it's unnatural. Uh, they're not born to to spank on your behalf. On top of that, 
then you run the risk of things going wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, brother and sister, they're out playing in the play, playground, and, you know, younger sister's doing something she shouldn't do. Older sister should absolutely step in and have something to say about that. But I'm talking about the consistent pattern of discipline in your home. You are not so lazy that you delegate it to your other kids. I, I think that's wrong. I think you're, you're, you're in dangerous territory at that point. Nobody... Not extended family, no one, no, nobody in any institution, teachers, no one. I mean, do they even spank anymore in schools? I don't know. They used to paddle. Some kids need a good paddling today in schools. <laughs> but no, no, this is our responsibility as fathers. Uh, man, this is God holding us accountable, guys. Say, I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how much you don't like it. I don't care how much you want to abdicate. At this moment right now, your calling is to be the one to relieve mom and take your children and go discipline your children. I know it's hard work. I know it gets discouraging. I know it gets old. I know you think you, you, you make yourself out to be the big bad dad. But that's why he tells us to do it in a certain way. And talking about this way, uh, you can also see really the manner, the demeanor in which we're supposed to do this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, because I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he also just doesn't tell us what to do, but how to do it. And when we see the way that the Apostle Paul treated his spiritual children, I think we can learn as fathers and mothers how we are to treat our physical children. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Notice that, just the heart, the parental heart of Paul there spiritually. For you recall, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day, so as not to burden any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his kingdom and glory. That really is the goal of all discipline is our hope and prayer is that our children would walk in a manner worthy of God. That's why we're doing everything that we're doing. Don't lose sight of the goal, parents. Do not lose sight of why you're doing the hard work right now. There's a spiritual end that you have in mind. And according to this, spanking is not in vain. Disciplining your child is not in vain. It plays a role. It is a means. It is God's intended means to accomplish His spiritual end. That's great. I like that because it dignifies discipline. It makes it more spiritual, maybe, than you even think. The next thing is not just... Our calling is not just to discipline our children, but the place of a father is also to disciple. So there's discipline, and there's disciple, and then look at this, verse 4 again at the end. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he uses a different word here. 
instruction in the Lord. The place of a father is only going to begin and progress in the right way if it is in the Lord. I am so glad that the Apostle Paul put that last prepositional phrase in that clause. In the Lord, or literally of the Lord, kuryu, which is a genitive of possession. It's, it's, it's his discipline. It's discipline in God or of God. It's of him. And what that means is that this will separate us, brothers and sisters, from moralism. You know, there's plenty of Mormon families that are really squeaky clean on the outside. On the surface, it looks like they got it all together, maybe more than you. I'm not pointing at everybody. Pastors can never catch a break as far as pointing goes. Is he pointing at it? I'm I'm saying, if you look at certain families, it may be that your unsaved neighbors, their children are more well-behaved than yours. But what this tells us is that the sphere of true discipleship and instruction and discipline for children is to be in the Lord. That dignifies the whole realm of Christian parenting. I love it. It eliminates the possibility of parenting being hijacked by moralists, these principles that you can just come to Scripture and just sort of take principles and adapt it to your life. No, 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 no. Everything is in the Lord because Mormons do not have and they do not know the true and living God. Their parenting, at the end of the day, is a pseudo-moralism and a superficial spirituality. Yours is not. Maybe, what, maybe that's why yours is harder because there's true spirituality involved. There's real warfare involved. There's real demonic opposition involved in what you're doing. Paul's call for godly instruction can be understood in three ways because he uses this word in three different contexts. He uses this word to describe instructions to follow, examples to avoid, and warnings to be heeded. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, obviously it has to do with instruction. So in other words, Fathers, and when I say fathers, I'm saying go back to the beginning of the verse and the imperative, fathers do not provoke, but bring them up, and then instruction. This is the catalyst for dad to know the word. If you're not a dad right now, you should be preparing yourself to be a dad by knowing the word of God as best as you can know it, as good as you can know it. As deeply as you can know it. You should be striving for the sake of your wife and your children to become an armchair theologian. To know the Word of God as best you can so that you can instruct your children with theology and doctrine and biblical wisdom. That's absolutely indispensable. This has to be done in the church, but more importantly, it has to be done in the home. You can't just pawn it off on the pastor to do it for you. You have to get in the Word. You need to learn a little something about expositing a passage of Scripture. What else are you going to do during family devotions? You're going to hopefully teach the Bible in your home. Oh, this is great. This is, I'm liking this. I'm looking at all the fathers in here as little pastors. I love it. 
that can hold you to a higher standard now. Because Paul is telling you to instruct your children the way that I instruct the church. What, so just because they're your children and they're little and they're small, what, they should get less quality theology than you're getting? No. I think you should strive to be a skilled Bible teacher in your house. And then let's see where you go from there. Yeah, this is an incentive for you. The other thing is that he uses this in a context in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, when he talks about that this is written for our instruction, our example. Uh, turn there with me for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What is that all about? Examples to avoid. Well, yeah, you can do this in Bible study. You take your children through examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of of examples that are to be avoided, and this also serves as instruction for your children. Verse uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. There's the word again that Paul uses in Ephesians. So we are to instruct our children... Not to follow bad examples. And so you know something about the story of creation. Fall. You know what happened with Cain, with Abel. You can tell them about the wickedness of Sodom. You can point to the apostasy of Israel. You can point to the unfaithfulness of David. You can talk about the reprobate mind of Esau. But you can point your children to examples that they should not follow. That they learn from. Last time Paul uses this word. Titus. Chapter 3, verse 10. Look what he says there. The context of Titus is that Titus is warning the church about divisive people. And he says in verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. There's the word. So these are warnings that we have to take heed to. And so if we just take the uses of Paul's Greek word here, what we see is that we, on the first hand, we instruct our children theologically. Secondly, we, 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 we show them examples to be avoided morally. And then finally, we show them dangerous uh, things that need to be uh, heeded, warnings that need to be heeded, rather. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. See, the hope of it all, brothers and sisters, is that as we invest our blood, sweat, and tears. And I know a lot of parents in here right now, you're, 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 you're fighting really hard with your children to, to conform to a standard that you want. You want them to be able to obey. You want them to be able to sit through a Bible study, sit through Sunday school, sit through the service, and you're working like crazy to make that happen. Don't lose sight of the bigger goal, though. It's not these little things. It's bigger than that. Let me end with this. How can I do a... How can I do a a sermon on parenting without quoting Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's what Timothy did. Remember, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy of the faith, the sincere faith that was in him because it was first in his parent, his mother, and his grandmother. See, in other words, What all of this is about is you investing spiritually in your children, 
depositing biblical theology in your children for what? So that you can leave a godly legacy long after you're gone. That's what it's about. So that even when your children get older and go whichever which way they're going to go in life, they're not going to forget the biblical deposit that you put in their heart. And this all begins with fathers taking their call seriously. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You know what that means, dads? What that means is that you had better be in communion with God yourself. You can't give your children something you don't have. If you're not spending time in the Word, why should they? If you're not spending time in prayer, why would they? If you're not spending time, you know, uh, communing with God, knowing God, going deeper with the Lord, trying to enhance and advance your theological abilities, why are you making your kids, if you're not memorizing Scripture, why are you making your kids memorize Scripture? This has to be present in us if we're going to give it to them. I love children for this one reason and many more. They hold us accountable. They are an accountability structure. God is telling us, this child has been given to you so that I can keep you accountable through this child. And now do what you're called to do, fathers. Amen? Father, oh, we know that the strength of our church is partly, but in a big way, inseparable to the health of the fathers in this church and the mothers and the family unit and what's going on domestically in our homes. And so, Lord, I just make a final appeal to my brothers. I pray that you would help them to take this serious. I pray that you would help them to take stock. I pray that you would help them to evaluate where they are. And for those that are not yet fathers, would you put a conviction within them to prepare themselves for fatherhood, to prepare themselves to have to lead in the home with children and all. This is such a massive, massive part of our lives, and we have such an incredible opportunity to leave a godly legacy. Maybe we didn't grow up in a godly home. Maybe we didn't have an example. Maybe we didn't have what Paul's talking about here. But what we have now is a golden opportunity to start a new tradition. Let go of the traditions of our fathers if wherever they went wrong and to do what's right according to your word. And for the sake of our children, yes, but even more so for the sake of your glory, help us to feel the gravity of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen.